generation dwells here. And then we moving by the pack, so we moving them. And even if you don't, then you do, cause you cool with them. They be like, I only went to school with them. Welcome to Color Correction, a Jesus-y podcast about race and faith from the perspective of an Asian guy, a black girl, and a white guy, too. I'm Andrew. I'm Asian. I use he, him pronouns. I'm Bethany. I'm black. I use she, her pronouns. I'm Chris. I'm white, and I use he, him pronouns. Uh, and we're joined today by a special guest, Wes Willison. Wes, um, how do you uh, how do you want to identify yourself? Can you introduce yourself? Yeah, uh, my name is Wes Willison. I use he, him pronouns. Um, I identify as multiracial Asian American. All right. We'll explore that more in a little bit. But the first thing that we like to do is talk about stuff that we wish we had mentioned or want to correct from previous episodes. So in our comeback episode, was that a comeback episode? Oh, it was a comeback we never episode left. because we were in person. Yeah, it was kind of a comeback episode. That's very Yeah, that's why it felt different. Um mm-hmm. I think I was so excited to be in the same room as you guys that I said Samaritan woman instead of Canaanite woman when I was describing the scenario in which Jesus, I think I was describing the scenario in which Jesus referred to the woman um, as a dog. Mm -hmm. Yep. So it was not a Samaritan woman. It was a Canaanite woman. So that's my correction for the week. Sorry to all our Canaanites out there. (laughs) Right. Um, Related to kind of uh, related to that previous episode, but also answering mail in our speak up section. Listen, I get that gazpacho exists. Uh, we got so many Instagram messages. Fed up. Speak your speak your truth, Andrew. I I said that soup has to undergo a cooking process, and everyone decided to simultaneously message our Instagram and tell me, what about gazpacho? What about <laughs> gazpacho? I get that gazpacho exists. Gazpacho is, um, I guess, a Spanish soup that's made out of processed raw vegetables and is not actually, doesn't undergo a cooking process. Um, and I guess, I, you know what? Uh, I, I'm Gazpacho is not a soup. I don't know. Yeah. Can I just get us <laughs> like salsa. Are you yeah. gonna Are you gonna yes. Instagram us more about? Yes. I was just gonna say, are you just causing salsa. more Instagram Thanks, trouble? Now next week, I'm gonna have to respond to the fact that I said that Gaspacho is not a soup. Never stop. Yeah, I won't have to respond to my salsa comment. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I um, I realized Andrew that I, I do have a correction and I put it in the wrong part of our our document. I did the same thing. Oh, go for it. Oh gosh. Um. So. We talked a little bit about um, leaving the the city in the in the last episode. Um, people were, were were feeling conflicted about that, and schools was at the right. center of our conversation. And I regret that I didn't mention that Circle of Hope, the church that we're all a part of, actually has two compassion teams um, partnering with neighborhood schools, Friends mm. of Penn Treaty, and Neighbors Investing in Childs Elementary, or Nice for short. So I just wanted to I just wanted to bring that back. Yeah, and those teams are great. So I, I'm I'm glad that you're mentioning that. Uh, the other thing, the other response that we got in terms of our that Q and A episode, people were pointing out to us that, um, the in, in response to our question of do you have to read the Bible to be a Christian, people were pointing out, I think this was kind of an expansion on things that we had said in the episode. But like, how about people who are illiterate? Um, Mm -hmm. how about like how for most of Christian history, most people weren't able to read the Bible. Like, could those people engage with God? Were those people Christians? Icons. Yeah. Yeah. Well, yeah. Icons, stained glass, all these like songs, all these other ways of interact, of relating to God that aren't necessarily the Bible. And I think those, that's totally legitimate. I mean, I don't want to discount that. It's possible to know God through those things for sure. Um, but also like if you're literate, there's also the Bible, <laughs> I guess, is our, what we were saying. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, yeah, yeah, I think I was. Th- I had people in mind who are like, I don't really like the Bible. It's weird, so I'm just not going to deal with it. But call, mm-hmm. but still right. call myself a Christian. That doesn't feel great. But like, mm-hmm. yeah, if you have some issues with literacy, I don't think I'm thinking of you. You know what I mean? Yeah, in response to that specific yeah. question. I'm also, I am sympathetic to people who, like, don't like the Bible, who, like, have a sure. reaction to it, you know, because it's it's you've been used to hurt them in the past. Yeah. So, like, if that's where you are, like, 
I think God can reach you where you are. I think it's okay. Um, yeah, maybe getting the total this totally wrong, but I remember hearing somewhere that Bart, this like famous theologian, like he was getting mad at people who were like saying, "Oh, you got to read the Bible. You got to read the Bible. It's the only way to know God." He said, "God can communicate to you in a dead dog. Like it doesn't matter what mm-hmm. means God uses. That's up to God." But revelation happens. Yeah. Um, so like the only irreducible thing is like that you know Jesus in whatever mm-hmm. way that is, right? Yeah, compl- totally. Um, so this has been a kind of complicated week in this country, not the least of which was because there were a, a number of mass shootings, a number of more black people murdered by the police. But also it's been a week where uh, the country had its eye on the trial of Derek Chauvin, the police officer that killed George Floyd. And he was found guilty on all three counts. And a lot of people have been mentioning, including like all of us, their kind of mixed reactions to what happened. Do you guys remember what your reactions were? What when did the what day was this? When did it happen? Was it It was Tuesday. Uh, it was Tuesday, Tuesday. Tuesday. It was Tuesday. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I was not surprised, right? Like I had posted on my Facebook. Part of me posted this on Facebook because I wanted documentation of like I said this in advance. Um, but I said on Monday that I could tell from day one that Derek Chauvin was going to be, um, convicted because he stepped too far outside of the status quo. Mm. And it, to me, it was very obvious that the system, um, would be willing to sacrifice him in order to maintain its control. So I had posted on my Facebook, like, yeah, like I think Derek Chauvin is um, going to be convicted. And then I think his conviction is going to be weaponized against the movement of abolition. Mm -hmm. Um, And we saw that in less than 24 hours, right? So many, uh, Micaiah Bryant was killed by police, a a 16 year old girl shot in her chest in Columbus, Ohio, four Mm -hmm. times by the police um, because she she was attacking somebody um, with a knife. It was a group of women that came to her home. She was scared. She was intimidated. She responded as most irrational 16-year-olds do. Mm-hmm. Um, and instead of responding from a trauma-informed lens or instead of responding um, with some sort of uh, other mechanism of um, you know, getting her to uh, be less activated, they chose to shoot a 16-year-old girl in her chest four times. And so many people, including black women on my timeline, were Mm. saying the the exact language that I put in my post, that Mm. there was going to be a lot of this is different. I have seen so many, this was was different. Like they needed to shoot this girl. And that just disgusted me. Like, Mm. my goodness, how much has this system fucked us up that we make up excuses for the police executing our children in front of us? Yeah. My goodness. Yeah. I remember you so. I remember that post where you were talking about how like what would be the best for the status quo and it is mm-hmm. that mm-hmm. it was it is a conviction of Derek Chauvin. Mhm. Right. I should not eat an orange in the middle of my sentence. I apologize. <laughs> I was like, what is Andrew doing? I didn't realize I was going to have to yeah. talk really Y'all, quick. Andrew is falling apart. Pray for him. <laughs> <laughs> um but yeah, I remember your post when you said that. What was your reaction when the verdict came out? I was nervous. I remember feeling so much anxiousness in my mm-hmm. chest. But when it happened, I was like, I knew it from day one. I watched opening arguments and I said, I don't need to watch anything else. I know what's mm-hmm. going to happen. I knew from day one. Was there any part of you that was happy that it, that it, that it was a guilty convict, guilty verdict? I feel completely unsatiated. I'm, com- right? I'm completely. Un- OK, yeah. Yeah. How about- like it is not satisfactory for me. Yeah. How about you guys, Chris, Wes? Um. I was relieved. I was definitely relieved to mm-hmm. see that verdict. Um, I wasn't sure. Um, I, yeah, I definitely didn't share Beth's sense of um, assurity, and 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 I, because like we out we we actually do have a shared cynicism about the system that we're involved in. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, the the relief I feel is just that like there's some accountability. Um, and that's it. It's, I, I, I'm still working through like all the other things, like, like we're talking about, like, this isn't, this isn't this giant win for Mm -hmm. like, um, abolition or like racism. It's, 
actually just one of the few times we see an officer being held accountable. It's a very small thing. It feels Mm -hmm. good and it's tiny. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I'm, I'm with you, Chris. I, I am just kind of, I guess stuck is the word, but like stuck on the contradictions inherent Mm -hmm. in the last week of like Mm -hmm. the, the joy in the streets at his conviction is like totally legit. Right. But at the same time, Justice has not been done. Mm-hmm. Right? Accountability has barely been done. There's yeah. been a lot of debates over that word accountability. I'm sympathetic to those. And I'm, I guess I'm just sitting in that contradiction, right? Not really like trying to run away from that or legitimize one side or another and just mm-hmm. recognize we have messed up tools to deal with a messed up situation. Yeah. And like let that contradiction inspire imagination and like, think through what what could possibly be a better option than doing this again mm-hmm. right mm-hmm. Um, I've been thinking about it a lot a lot of writers talk about this about like enhancing like leaning into contradictions to make them felt so that people can can sit in that and understand the flaws or the the the, the uh, pain points right mm-hmm. um, and so I've been sitting with that just that, like there's not an easy way to resolve the feelings of this week Mm-hmm. And I think to do that would be to miss some of the importance of what's happening. Mm-hmm. Of just sitting yeah. with the difficulty of this week. So, Yeah, that's a great point. The day of, I had brought my Legal Observer hoodie to work in anticipation of the fact that if there was a not guilty verdict, there'd be a lot of spontaneous demonstrations that night. Um, hmm. So as I was going to work that day, like I was watching all the buildings on Market Street board up like like it was like it was a war zone mm-hmm. um and uh then at 4 30 our, our hr sends an email to everyone in the office being like if anyone wants to go home now you can um <laughs> which is such a i have such a conflicted reaction to that but in any case it was like but in anyway but then the verdict came out and it was a, a guilty verdict and like all of a sudden like my whole evening changed like instead of like uh, chasing protesters and watching for police misconduct. Like, I could just kind of relax at Dilworth Plaza and wow. go to cell. That was weird. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So, because even though I had like my thought that he was going to be convicted, I was mm-hmm. also still prepared to like be in the street. Right. And the fact that like life just went on, yeah, was weird. I didn't. I didn't know what to do with yeah. that that night. I feel conflicted even about the joy that people were feeling in this in the same way that you were talking about Wes, just because um, when you study the purpose of punishment in 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 jurisprudence, do you see that punishment has a bunch of different purposes uh, like deterrence, incapacitation, rehabilitation, retribution and restitution are the five purposes. But our system is pretty much only good at maybe incapacitating people that is like locking them up or possibly uh, uh retribution because you suffer if you're locked up yeah. so like the only joy that it was possible was the fact that there is retribution here like the guy the murderer is going to suffer but there all of the other elements of just of a just punishment uh rehabilitation restitution deterrence even are not present so yeah, that makes sense so um we're glad to have wes with us today um i wes and i are in the same cell yep yep uh, oh, that sounds we're, like a fun we're members cell. of the same congregation and frequently wes is the only frequently in, in a lot of spaces i'm the only asian and wes is i guess also the only asian the only other asian yeah um <laughs> and wes is identifies as multiracial Right. Here's why I thought I wanted to Wes here, not just because he's great at exploring. What's your training, Wes? Uh, I just graduated from seminary. Yeah. Do you want to name drop your seminary? No. <laughs> uh, I went to Princeton. Sure. There we go. So um, Wes is a seminarian, uh, but also I have been stuck. I Last week's, last time's question, the Q&A question last time about BIPOC and BILA and um what we were talking about in terms of whether these terms include people hmm. beyond the black white binary mm-hmm. 
had me thinking a lot about these in-between spaces. Also because I feel like we're kind of existing in, in, in an in-between space right now. Um, in terms of like where we are in the pandemic or in current events. Um, hmm. And Wes is, is, uh, Wes is a good friend and also really good at articulating these kinds of experiences. Maybe it's because, maybe because Wes, in a certain way, Asians are always in that in-between space. Right. Because nobody ever notices us. Hmm. But I can only imagine that that existence in liminal space has to be enhanced for somebody who's multiracial like you. Yeah, for sure. I think yeah. the first time I saw you, I didn't even recognize what race. Oh, go ahead, Beth. I was going to ask a similar question. I was like, do you feel like the world navigates you as an Asian person? Right. Do you think the world interacts with you as an Asian person? You know, that's a good question, because honestly, I do not know. Like, I don't know what people are perceiving me as until I interact with them. Mm -hmm. And, you know, the vast majority of people, we don't interact at a level where they can understand or articulate to me how they understand me right mm, mm -hmm. their lenses are you know tacit i don't i don't get to see how they perceive me so i i go back and forth on this like i had this i had this conversation with my dad actually a few uh years ago now right 2019 yeah mm -hmm. that's that's like a long time um so i was at we were at a wedding and i was driving home with my dad or we were driving back to the airport um and it was like 3 a.m or something we'd helped like clean up the wedding we were making it back to the, like across the state to get to this 6 a.m. you know red-eye flight and we're driving and I'm trying to keep him awake and you know your frontal lobe is like shut down at that point at the mm. night <laughs> you say things that you maybe haven't like you wouldn't otherwise say maybe um, and my dad out of the blue uh, like four in the morning in this like rental Hyundai as we're driving you know through cornfields he's like Wes do you think of yourself as Asian <laughs> my dad is white <laughs> my mom is Chinese American. Uh -huh. My dad grew up in Detroit. My mom grew up in New York City. And I'm 30 years old. Or I'm 29 at the time, 31 now. Mm -hmm. um, and I have never heard my dad ask me that before. That's the first time he said that. Mm. And I was a little floored uh, because not that I've like wanted to have this conversation because it's a weird one. Mm -hmm. um, I'm just surprised that we hadn't had the conversation. And it kind of dawned on me at that moment that, like, I don't even know how my dad perceives me. That mm. is amazing. And, I mean, I, I was like, Dad, yeah, I, I do see myself as Asian because I am. Uh -huh. Like, you know who your wife is. You know who my mother is. Like, what do you what do you mean by this question? Uh -huh. And he just said, oh, you know, I, I guess I just never saw you that way. I, I thought, you know, you're my son. I see you as white. Interesting. And, I don't know. Oh. I don't know what it'll look like for us to like finish this conversation. It's ongoing, you know. That but is that amazing. Sort of opened up a lot of a lot of uh, conversations since then. Most of which have been with my wife, who's also also multiracial. She's Filipino American, um, and her dad is also white. So she doesn't look mixed race at all, though. I would interact with her like a brown person. I definitely would be like white people acting up to her i wouldn't necessarily <laughs> walk up to you like that right so this is the interesting thing that i think like the way that i'm perceived i won't speak for her but the way that the way that i'm perceived is highly contextual and i, I mean that like geographically especially like in different mm -hmm. parts of the world i'm perceived differently interesting so okay in uganda which is where i spent my high school years um I should probably just give a, a full linear timeline, shouldn't I? That would probably help. Um, but to finish the point, in Uganda, I'm seen as Chinese, right? <laughs> like, like people instantly understand uh -huh. that I'm Chinese, and they'll break out all the jokes that are like pretty offensive. You're like, mm. oh, hi, mm. Ching Chong, Ching. and I'm like, come on. Um, uh -huh. But it's like it's a different Uganda? context. That's in Uganda, right? Okay. And everyone knows that I'm I look Chinese, and then they talk to me, and they're <laughs> uh -huh. like, oh, you're American. Like you're definitely American. What's going on here? You know? Um, yeah. We'll be dead. Yeah, would it help if I just like lay out the geography of my life? I mean, you're saying so much interesting stuff. <laughs> um, it, it almost before, doesn't matter. Yeah. I'm like, before I'm we in. jump, before we jump into that, I do want to talk. I would. I want to ask you this though. When your dad said that he sees you as white, what was your reaction to that? How did you feel about that? It's hard. I. I can't say that it's a surprise, mm -hmm. because that's. That is who I know my father to be. Yeah, right? someone who isn't particularly 
um, reflective on his racial experience. Mm. I think what surprised me was that he hadn't, um, it sounds like he hasn't even talked with my mom about this. Yeah. There's a lot of conversations I want to have with him about this. I mean, we've been in the pandemic really since then. Like I've barely mm-hmm. seen him since then, you know, mm-hmm. but you know, I don't know for who, who else in the world, the, the like critical racial conversations, of their life with their mm-hmm. family are happening af, you know, in their, in their fourth decade of life. Right. Like right. that's late, like what's going on. And I think sort of the, the question that sort of swirled around all of this. Mm-hmm. And I mean this for everything that I'm about to say through the rest of this conversation is like, what's normal. Like, am I like behind schedule or is this like right on schedule for multiracial people? What a great question. I don't know. Right. And there's like no way to compare because the only other people who have exactly my experience more or less are my siblings who are Mm -hmm. on the same schedule and Mm. other people who are multiracial. Like it's different. It's different if you're, you know, black and white multiracial, like it's very different. Right. Um, I do remember maybe around uh, first or second grade, my parents explaining to me that I was Taiwanese specifically, hmm. but the, they'd never really addressed like the racial aspect of it. The only yeah, the, they like, mean that as like a political conversation. I think it was mainly like a political national conversation. It was mm. more about where we were from than like how mm. white people perceived us. Um, because I don't even think they had really processed that, or maybe they or have really processed that in a really mm. thorough way. Um, I mean, at, at what point, West, you? At, by the time you had this conversation with your dad, you said you, you said that you did see yourself as Asian. Maybe mm-hmm. this will help take us back in time. But when do you think you started seeing yourself as Asian? Well, I mean, in in a way, that's not even the truth, right? Because I am also white. Like what Beth is saying is true. That like I can inhabit rooms in different ways. Um, I actually had another conversation about this with with someone else recently, where um, we're in this group together where. Uh, we're talking about questions of race and racism and like navigating this institution's relationship with race. And this person is not white, um, but asked me, why do you think white people want to talk together about race? Like, is that helpful for white people to talk to each other about race? Um, and I was like, I don't know. I've never been in that room. Like anytime I'm in that room, I, it's not just white people. So I don't know what they're like when they talk to each other. But that wasn't the impression <laughs> from him, right? Mm-hmm. I think he did expect that I've been in that room, that I know what it's like when white people talk to each other about race. Mm-hmm. Um, but I but you're don't. like a secret agent. Right. I, and I'm, I'm <laughs> not Asian. necessarily. Because secret like, agent Asian. <laughs> yeah. it's, it's very much on an individual by individual basis. Like, right. I do not know how people are reading me. Right. There's how I choose to divulge myself. That's one thing I have in control. Mm-hmm. Like the way I choose to tell my story, the way I choose to identify myself or open up. That is within my control, but the way the lenses and the perspectives that people bring to me and my body and the way they see my body, not even the way I talk or the words that I choose to use mm. or the stories I choose to tell, but the way they understand my eyes and my yeah. hair color and all the, you know, these phenotypical things that's out of my control. So I have to navigate that on an individual basis. So, sure. I mean, it's different for my siblings because they all exhibit different, you know, phenotypes that are categorized racially in different ways. So mm-hmm. I was going to just say that's really interesting to me to walk into a room and not have an expectation as to how the room will navigate you, right? Like mm-hmm. as a black woman, I know that mm-hmm. I need to start using big words. I need to mm-hmm. speak slowly. I need to make sure I say, hi, nice to meet you. My name is Bethany. Like right. as soon as I walk in the room. joke about being named Bethany. Right, right. right. <laughs> like I, I walk into rooms knowing that I have to make white people comfortable. I can't imagine walking into a room and having to be received before Hmm. I knew how to interact with them. Like, how are these people navigating my body and my person? And now I respond from there. I Hmm. walk in Hmm. prepared, typically. So that's a very interesting existence to me. Yeah, and I think I will say the one thing that I'm identifying is on this spectrum is is race. The other stuff, I'm a cishet you know, tall, able-bodied, white, you know, male. Mm-hmm. And I navigate rooms with the expectation that people are probably going to read me according to all the power dynamics afforded me in that way, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. So that's stuff, yeah, that's a given. Like, I'm always making sure that I'm paying attention to that. But racially, it's just like, no, we got to suss that out a little bit more. But the assumption typically is more healthy to assume people are reading me as, as I said, able-bodied, tall, 
ma- white male mm-hmm. um, and pay attention to that power dynamic specifically because mm-hmm. that's that's the most important one. Mm-hmm. Yeah. For my survival, my navigating my blackness is most important, right? right? right. Like right. I need to make sure that I'm heard. I need to make sure that I'm taken care of. I need right. to make sure that people don't get pissed off and call the cops or something. So for me, right. my header is blackness. That's very yeah. interesting. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, because I mean, I've I've ignored that too often, and then it comes around to bite you in the end, where it's like, wow, like you really hurt people, mm-hmm. right? Because of how you ignored the way that you were being read, or the way that you were op- occupying the room, and all those other aspects of my identity that it's just described. I mean, those are those are significant power advantages afforded to me, right? And so, learning to pay attention to those things just as a default. That's important. That's really important. And I mean, that's been a long lesson with a lot of people who have taken the time to help me see that. Um, mm. But this this one thing that we're describing around race and how like my face is red. Um, that's that's <laughs> you're, that's that's the one dynamic that that is is definitely different than those other things. Yeah. I mean, let's let's address that. Let's go back in time. First of all, where did you grow up? How did yeah, you grow yeah. up? So I was born in Chicago. I was born in the Northwestern Memorial Hospital. Downtown Chicago. Wow! If you ever been there, it's got it's got these oval windows, and so anytime we would drive by, you'd see it, and it's like a skyscraper with like oval windows. It's pretty cool. Um, have you ever been in Chicago, like Lakeshore Drive? It's like a beautiful drive, and you could there was one moment where you could see the Northwestern Memorial Hospital. Mm-hmm. It's gone now; they took it down. It's really sad. But yeah, I grew up in Chicago. Um, we lived in the North Shore in Evanston. It's a pretty diverse neighborhood, but um, we were still the only Asian kids on the block. Mm-hmm. Um, I lived there until age 14, and then for high school, my family moved to East Africa. Uh, my dad's a pastor in a vineyard church. My mom is a teacher, and they wanted to take us abroad to give us a sense of the globe, you mm-hmm. know, before we left left home, really. I have grown to, you know, deeply appreciate that choice that they made. Really? I appreciate mm-hmm. it at the moment, right? At the time, it was really cool. Um, but as I've gotten older and sort of understood what they were concerned about with how, how suburban America works, like it just makes mm-hmm. more and more sense. We we moved to to Kenya initially for a year. I lived in Mombasa, which is on the coast. Uh, the easiest way to explain Mombasa is like Hawaii is to America what Mombasa is to Europe. Um, so like a lot of Europeans mm-hmm. visiting, strong tourist industry, you know. So we lived on the beach, um, like right on the shore of the Indian Ocean. My dad was a pastor there. I went to a British school there. Um, and then after that year, we were intending to move back to Evanston and return to the Vineyard Church in, in Evanston. And instead, we moved to Uganda. Uh, an international church there offered my dad a job. Um, and the experience was was positive enough that we were interested in staying abroad. So we lived there. I lived there for the next three years. That was sophomore, junior, and senior year of high school. Then I came to Philadelphia. I went to Swarthmore College out in Delco. Hmm. Um, and I've stayed in Philly since then. Um, that's amazing. That's the, that's the geography. That's the timeline. Yeah. I don't even know how I want to approach this. That's so, that's <laughs> well, I think a... the, thing, the thing that I will say is that yeah. there, there's, there's two ways in which liminality shows up in my story very prominently. The first is racially. Right? Yes. That's the one I've been living with my whole life. Mm-hmm. The second is the experience of being a third culture kid. Um, basically what that means is first culture is you're born into the culture in which you grow up. Right. Right. So you, you live and experience for your whole life a culture that's always felt like home. Uh, I actually don't know what second culture is. What is that? I don't know. Is that when you're just born into a culture that isn't? Is that like an immigrant experience? You just move to one other place? Oh, like maybe your parents are immigrants? Yeah, I think that may be it. That, that would make right. sense to me, but yeah. I'm trying to learn from you here. Yeah, this is a bit embarrassing. <laughs> I don't know what this is. Uh, but I know third culture kid experience is the, the, the experience of not feeling at home in any particular culture. Always mm-hmm. feeling like you're in between because you have citizenship in one place. You lived three or four years in this other place. Now you live in this other place. And you're always like living and occupying the in-between spaces of all these different cultures. Mm-hmm. But how does the, the experience of being a third culture kid affect how you move through the world now? That's a good question. I mean, I am American. That's the thing, right? Like as much as I have this experience of being third culture, I'm an American citizen. Mm -hmm. I have lived the majority of my life here. You know, the last 10 plus years has been in Philadelphia. Like I'm Philadelphian specifically. Um, And I think there's, there's sort of a disconnect with people who are more native. I don't say native entirely, more native, right? People who've, who've more of an experience and a facility with 
Delco, Philadelphia, whatever it is. Like I'm always the one who kind of is still always learning things, mm-hmm. uh, but also also having a repository of experiences that have no way to map onto this. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's like stories that just, you can't tell them because no one has the hooks to understand how the story fits in. Hmm. Um, it's a tough question. It's a broad question. I feel like I am always trying to, well, my parents came to this country and they had this idea that we could completely assimilate. Yeah. That we could somehow as immigrants become white because they mm-hmm. weren't really aware of race because they hadn't Mm -hmm. had to deal with race in Taiwan. Um, For large parts of my life, I think I bought into the lie of assimilation, that it was possible if I was able to speak English well enough, if I was able to understand things culturally, if I ate enough Lunchables, uh, (laughs) that that I could become... I could become as white as the next kid, and I could just Taiwanese blend in. cuisine for Lunchables. <laughs> yes. Yo, I wanted Lunchables so bad. I, oh, yeah. yeah. Uh, but so I bought, I definitely bought into that idea. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it wasn't until I went, I lived in Taiwan for a year that I realized that, like, I'm not even going to be able to be Taiwanese, you know, mm-hmm. because in Taiwan, I had this reverse experience where people would look at me and assume I belonged and mm-hmm. then talk to me and realize that I didn't. Mm-hmm. Whereas in the United <laughs> States, like people assume I don't belong and then they talk to me and, and then they hear my voice and then it's like, oh, I guess you do belong. Mm-hmm. I wonder, Wes, if because this, the liminality, this in-betweenness of both your race and also your upbringing as a, as a third culture kid, do you just move through the world without any expectation that you'll fit in anywhere? Yeah. No, that's uh-huh. very true. That's very true. Uh-huh. I mean, I like I when I studied abroad in undergrad, um, Hannah and I studied abroad in China. We were mm-hmm. in Beijing, and no one looked at me thinking, "Oh, this guy's this guy's Chinese." Like no one says, "Oh, right. this guy's Han Chinese." Even though I very much have Han Chinese, like mainland China mm-hmm. heritage from Fuzhou, and and Shanghai. Like th- that's my ancestral roots. Every room I walk into, I have to navigate. Like, what are people reading? Um, and nationally, racially, the combination of those two means that there's not really a geography. There's not really a place I can walk into and feel finally here are my people. Mm, yeah. That place does not exist. There's nowhere I can walk in and think these people know me based on a long shared history of mm-hmm. experience, of story, of food. Like that place does not exist. There are places where I'm known in part. Mm-hmm. And then there's my family, right? My, yeah. my immediate nuclear family. And because we've moved so much around the world, we don't even have land or place mm-hmm. where mm. we can rec- return to. Right. Right? Mm-hmm. We meet mm-hmm. in these Airbnbs, in these mm-hmm. rentals, in places around the world. We are a pilgrim, wandering, nomad family in yeah. many, many ways. So, That's amazing. Like, yeah, there, there's not even like a hometown. Right. I can't imagine not having a hometown. Do you right. feel, yeah, how does, what does that bring up in you? How do you navigate that? Yeah, I think, you know, on the one hand, everyone leaves home. You got to do it for yourself at some point. Um, but in many ways, I think this is this is opening up another thing. I think my relationship with my partner, Hannah, that relationship was born out of this sense of displacement mm. and liminality because she experiences something similar. She doesn't mm. have the same geographic roving experience history that I have. Um, but she grew up on a reservation in South Dakota, and she was read as Native American there. I can see and that. And in, in Rapid mm-hmm. City, mm-hmm. in the major city, she was read as Latina. Mm-hmm. People used, to, and then at other times, I mean, people used to shout Ashanti at her down the hallway in high school, like just total mystery how people are reading her. Right. Mm-hmm. So when we met each other and we started talking about this, we realized like oh, wow, we actually have a lot of ways we can support each other through this Mm -hmm. and helping each other understand all of the ways in which this shows up in family, in school, in institutions, in faith. Like, it's in everything. Mm. And so that's the reason I bring this up is that there are ways in which she and I have been able to make home for each other in places that we maybe haven't felt virtually anywhere else. Mm. Which is to say, like, you know, it's a cliche when people say romantically, like, home is when I'm with you. Uh Uh-huh. But, I mean, that's something we've really had to pay attention to for each other. It makes me want to cry. We've really had to do that for each other because Uh 
there aren't rooms we can walk into and people will know us more than each other. That's incredible. I, I feel like wherever I go, I am trying to, I feel like, like my parents, I have bought into the lie that I can somehow belong. Hmm. I feel like Hmm. uh, I still believe that if I try hard enough, I can be woven into, I don't know, the city that I'm in, the institutions that I'm part of, the, my workplace. Uh, Hmm. and I am trying really hard to like be such a part of it that I can't be that I can't be extracted from it. Mm-hmm. And then every time that I like every time I experience a shift, like a friend of mine gets divorced or moves away or something, like something the ground moves under me. It it really throws me for a loop because it reminds me of how tenuous like life is or my mm-hmm. situation is. I have a hard time holding on to things loosely. I'm realizing in this phase of my life, like I really want the security of being like tightly held in a place in a situation Mm -hmm. um so like west the kind of existence that you're describing um i can't comprehend being comfortable with it Hmm. uh and you navigate it with such grace and you're you're so articulated uh, about talking about it but i and it's uh, it's it's like almost unfathomable to me Mm -hmm. well i would say there's one way one big way in which all of us on this call do navigate this all the time, and that is Christianity. That there is a way in which this faith tells this constant, pervasive story of being a pilgrim people, of Mm -hmm. wandering, right? This home being our home, but also there's this pull, this yearning towards somewhere else. So, like, when I was in seminary, I read Augustine describing this. Peregrini is the word that he uses, right? Peregrine falcon, the wanderer. Um, And when he read that, it made sense to me made big time sense because it's it's throughout the bible right over and over there's descriptions of god meeting people as they're walking as they're Mm. in between places that's the place Mm -hmm. of revelation paul on the road the road to emmaus philip and the eunuch like over and over that's healing blind like everything that happens on the road abraham being called to move moses on the move all of these folks on the move and that story continuing to this moment this very moment right that that's the the constant of god meeting people in that place of in between Mm-hmm. There's beautiful, beautiful theology and ways of understanding that that all of us share as Christians, right? Mm-hmm. And I would say digging into that has given me a lot of peace. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Because I, I know that I'm not the first one to walk this path that I feel like I'm alone on. Mm-hmm. That is a mystery, mm-hmm. right? That there's this path that I feel alone on, but someone else has walked it also. And it's not even people who look like me. It's people who don't. And people who don't share the same, ex- same experience as I do. And mm-hmm. that this story that's passed on is one that I partake in in my own way. And I clear that path and I make it more accessible for folks behind me. So, you know, this week, I think the stuff with... I was just struck, I was, I was thinking about this, this podcast and thinking like for a long time, if I looked like me, born before what, 1980, mm-hmm. 1970, I would be recognized to be a bastard mm. because of what I look like. And a lot of people who are multiracial would experience that, right? When they walk down the street, someone looks at them and knows that something illegal happened, mm. that a man took advantage mm. of a woman. And that that is that would have been my legal existence in a very different way than I think a lot of people, especially in America. I'm not I'm not equating that. I'm saying people have different experiences with this. Mm-hmm. But someone cleared the brush for me to be able to walk down the street and not be recognized in that mm-hmm. way, socially or legally. And so when we're talking about, you know, the trans rights bills in various states in the South. Yeah. Or any other way in which that legal recognition and that social inclusion is not extended to others. I mean, I am part of that story big time wow. because someone did that work for me. Yeah. And I take that. I've, I was struck by that this week because I don't think I'd really put that together mm-hmm. that my experience as unique and as odd as it can feel sometimes. Mm. If you're on the margin, we're all, you know, anyone else is on the margin. We have something to talk about. Right? Mm-hmm. And that's, mm-hmm. that's to, to pay attention to that positionality and that, that power dynamic and then ultimately this like hmm. story of the faith 
and how we find unique embrace and inclusion mm-hmm. at the margin. I mean, that, that has been something that's given me a lot of peace, even as this like, you know, yeah, I am unmoored, mm-hmm. right? I love Philadelphia. Sometimes it feels like Philadelphia loves me, mm-hmm. but it doesn't necessarily feel like I'm understood. Ever. Yeah, mm-hmm. sure. And mm-hmm. just finding some peace with that and patience and staying as long as I'm welcome and navigating that as, as needed. And yeah, there's so many coping strategies that I'm still talking about and working out and therapy helps and all that, you know, but yeah. I think it makes sense for me to say this for our listeners. I had to turn the camera off because (laughs) I started crying as Wes started talking about like God walking alongside wanderers because I've just Mm -hmm. had a tough week. Right. So this and I I feel like I'm in this liminal space. Right. Mm -hmm. Like Mm -hmm. I had a big conflict. A relationship is done. And now I'm like, where do I go next? So that particularly touches me this idea that God has a special place in his heart for those mm-hmm. who are wandering and but, navigating mm-hmm. and exploring that God really sees us in our, in our wandering. Um, yeah. Yeah. And I think that's the story of a lot of people of color, right? Cause mm-hmm. as you're talking about like never really feeling like you belong, I feel similarly, but I think I feel similarly because I'm always navigating other people's assumptions and trying to belong within the frame Mm. of this particular belonging, right? Like I, like in the talk that I mentioned today, I Mm -hmm. referenced Cotton Eye Joe. Like I learned the shit out some line dances at my white high school. These white people love (laughs) that That chicken dance and the Cotton (laughs) Eye Joe and stuff. Like I, I wanted to belong, so mm-hmm. I practiced belonging or what I needed to do, um, almost like a discipline. But this right. idea that even in that, in that wandering, God is with me. I was like, good God, Wes. Mm. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah. Yeah, that's a yeah. word. I don't even know what to say to that. That's such a beautiful idea. This idea that in in the lostness, in the in-betweenness, that's where God is is and that's where god meets us um and that's fucking turn my camera off again (laughs) (laughs) that is and that you're you're completely right um and it's in that sense that the people that are most secure are often farthest from god right Mm -hmm. i think yeah i I think that's that's something to pay attention to the idea that you could Mm -hmm. have a category that easily slots you in to a set of people to whom you quote unquote belong Mm -hmm. the idea that that category category does the work for you I think that's the thing to be suspicious of, right? Mm, that like, because I am a man, I am known. No, like you're known according to other standards that have been set forth and you're held accountable according to, you know, the ways in which power is afforded those standards. But to be known is, is very different Mm. than Mm -hmm. to be read, you know? Yeah. And, and this is taken me. To be known is different than to be read. Yeah. (laughs) Tess, are you paying attention? Yeah, no, I was just gonna say. Podcast more often. We, we all saw it. We all saw the Instagram post with that quote. Just, we all saw it. Oh, right, so great. Uh Again, like racism is a massive system of reading. You know, it's Mm -hmm. not a system of knowledge. It's Mm -hmm. a system of reading, and Mm -hmm. that—that's the thing that, like, it's been so hard for me to contextualize this personally, right? Because, like, you know, I remember in grad school in the first year of the seminary program. I was taking this really cool class in this really cool place. It was a farm. And one of the first readings was this book by this person named Sang Lee, Korean theologian, Asian American theologian, writing about liminality as a site for building a theology. I remember reading it and thinking, this doesn't describe me at all, mm-hmm. and feeling all the more excluded because of that, right? That mm-hmm. someone had built a whole theology around the experience of liminality, and their experience of liminality was different than me. Wes, I like. You've said a couple of things about um, sitting in discomfort tonight and being unmoored. Those those two ideas are really rhyming with something in in me. Like there's, I'm just like the word unmoored is going to go with me from this conversation. Yeah, I mean, what a week to think about that, mm. to live with that. Yeah, mm-hmm. I don't know how else to feel, right? It does mm-hmm. not feel like coming home now that Chauvin's <laughs> verdict is out. Mm-hmm. Nope. I feel more confused than before. Honestly, yeah. yeah. 
that's what happened this week is all we did was recognize that this thing happened and there was you know this particular line of blame that runs them in this particular way according to ways in which we've set up our society mm-hmm. and then from here we have to consider what happens next mm-hmm. yeah and i'll say we're still very much in the thick of it yeah mm-hmm. what keeps troubling me about the chauvin trial is that like it's just not satisfying, right? Like, I Uh hate having to be dependent upon this racist system to dictate what is justice and accountability for me. Mm -hmm. And it will not heal our communities, right? Like, it's just Chauvin going to jail for for doing something so egregious is not, it's not going to heal us. I I feel like we're still wandering to go back to that reference point, right? right? Like, we're still wandering, we're still seeking, we're still looking for healing. Yeah. Mm prisons cannot fucking heal us it's just not it's not it's not it so this just yeah the verdict feels quite unsatisfactory for me it's it's definitely unsatisfactory for all the reasons that you're talking about and i i definitely think wes what you were what you're talking about about existing in the dissatisfaction Mm -hmm. i think the discomfort that we feel from this lack of satisfaction from chauvin's verdict is helpful i think it Mm -hmm. tells us something important Mm -hmm. about ourselves and what we want from from our justice system and it also tells us something useful about our justice system that when it, even when it works it doesn't feel good because there's something broken in it there's something wrong with it uh, yeah. and i definitely like and it, i i totally agree with, with like I, i'm connecting to what you're saying in that if 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 i were satisfied with it um i think people who are satisfied with the verdict are probably far from God. Mm. That's think... interesting. Say more. We're going to get so many letters. <laughs> no. Uh, <laughs> these are letters we want. Please bring these. I, I mean, I generally feel this about a lot of things, but I, I think if you, I feel that if you tend to be satisfied with where you are, if you aren't, don't yearn for something more, if you don't feel in a sense that you are far from home and, and that you need to be going somewhere, if there's some not something greater than you and something beautiful that's drawing you towards it if you're just happy where you are there's probably something that you're not aware of (laughs) there's probably something that you need to work on and i know this about myself like i think when Mm -hmm. i if i start getting too comfortable i need to start i need to watch out Mm -hmm. if i if i start feeling if i lose my sense of the in-between spaces if i no longer want to go toward a direction uh my compass is probably broken Mm. A lot of people are feeling the dissatisfaction from from the system working properly. And I think mm-hmm. that speaks to people who feel dissatisfied still have the imagination to to, to comprehend that there's something else possible. Um, mm-hmm. And I think that's important to cultivate. This may be a little too heady for this hour of the night, but do you remember that lesson in like high school English or something where they're like, comedy is when a story ends happily tragedy is when a story ends sadly and things go bad uh-huh. and the reality that like no stories actually don't end in real life like that doesn't happen mm-hmm. we don't find ourselves at the at the verdict mm-hmm. be like oh yes now because we can file chauvin's papers away his story is finished right. it's like no that is a that is a false effects. conclusion to drive mm-hmm. right like this yeah. this keeps going we have to mm-hmm. deal with that like uncertainty that hanging feeling are we going to forget Chauvin's name? No. Mm-hmm. We have to live with that now. Yeah. I have to think about this dude for the rest of my life. Mm-hmm. You know? I just I just want to say that the idea that mm-hmm. a verdict is a conclusion, I mean, that's just not true. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know? And that's a good reminder for this time. I mean, uh, we should be comfortable with that irresolution. Mm-hmm. And I part of the reason we can take comfort in it is, I think, Wes, exactly what you're talking about, that I, which I... I think is the only way to end this segment, which is that God meets us in in that space. Mm-hmm. Uh, and thank goodness, right? Because we're we're all alone in those spaces. Yeah, yeah. it's like who yeah. else but God? Yeah. Yeah. Um, so the last thing uh, we like to end our podcast by talking about whatever we're into this week. Uh, Beth, you want to kick us off? 
Sure. This is actually hard for me. I have said this a million times on Twitter and like other social media, but I've had such a rough week emotionally just dealing with past relationship stuff. Mm. And for the first time, whenever I would hear other people say this, that like, oh, I was so upset I couldn't eat. I'd be like, give me some of your depression. That sounds great. I'll take a couple pounds off. <laughs> for the first time, I was so upset. I didn't eat for three days. I didn't wow. eat from Saturday until Tuesday. And then on Tuesday, I ordered myself a hoagie. And I was like, my God, this is like the Philadelphians antidepressant. I feel so much better. (laughs) So I'm into hoagies this week, right? (laughs) That is what I'm into. Wow, amazing. It was a really great fucking hoagie. Where'd you get your hoagie? I just got it from like a pizza shop around my way, oh, Diamond right Pizza. On. And it was just this delicious chicken salad hoagie with bacon. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And I felt yeah. so much yeah. better. Yeah, and here's here's the deal. It doesn't even matter because they're all equally good here uh, in Philly. As why are you? Um, the tide okay. is high in Philly for hoagies. Yeah. I mean, it is yes, a sandwich town, but even so, Chris, you're going to get I, Yeah, you got to be a little bit that. careful Shut down in Philadelphia. Let me tell you something. If you ever come, all listeners out there, especially the ones that come to my church, let me tell you something. Don't you ever come to my house and bring no goddamn Subway Hoagie or LaCroix. I will fight you in the streets. Don't you ever bring a Subway (laughs) Hoagie to my house. Wow. All right? (laughs) Wow. Out of nowhere, just sniping LaCroix. Yeah. I know. Just a warning. And and we know, we know know Bethany and LaCroix. LaCroix to my house. (laughs) Whenever I have house parties, y'all bring it's like why is that better Bethany than Bethany has a vendetta water. against like, seltzer? Why do you bring it? Yeah. <laughs> I really do not like seltzer. Um, so for two ways like to piss me off: truly? give me Subway or Lacroix. Wow. So that's what uh, I'm into, y'all. Chris, but all right, um, I I'm gonna lie a little bit, just a little bit. Um, I am a big fan of two people named Fox and Rob who um, are friends of ours through our work in participatory defense who we, we've met, um, who I feel like I'm a big fan of because I follow them on Instagram, um, who are the subject of a documentary that is up for an Academy Award. And the movie is called... I didn't I'm, realize it was nominated. Um, can, wow. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. Cool. Um, It's on Amazon Prime. The lie is that I'm into it, even though I haven't seen it yet. But I, I -hmm. know I'm gonna like it. Um, And it's, it's the story of how they held on to one another while um, he Fox was incarcerated. Um, Mm. He's Rob. Because I, he's Rob. I'm I'm sorry. I I did I did say that backwards. And they're Mm -hmm. beautiful people. So I am I'm I'm invested. And I'm going to watch so it. That's so exciting. Week. Right on. Yeah. Wes, what are you into? Last night I watched Promising Young Woman. Oh, how was that? Life. Oh, my God. You need to watch this movie. It is so good. Mm-hmm. I, uh, I had not even seen a trailer or seen the Rotten Tomatoes score or anything. I just knew that it was nominated for Best Picture. My wife and I, we like watching a lot of the Best Picture nominees, or at least the ones that got some, got some buzz, got some mm-hmm. hype. Um, I don't really want to describe this movie without spoiling it, but I will say it's definitely a movie that comes in the wake of Me Too, right? It's a movie about a lot of the dynamics, the wounds, and it is very focused on the experience of women who've been ignored, right? Whose accusations haven't been taken seriously, who haven't been believed, women who haven't been believed. And it's, it's a great movie. It's just fantastic. Carrie... Carrie Mulligan is that her name? It's a little too late in the evening. Carrie Mulligan, yeah, she. I just, I'm, I'm so impressed by her. She does such a good job in the movie, and this sort of calls back something else that I wasn't, I haven't watched in a while. But um, I may not, I may destroy you. Have you seen that show? It's also on HBO. Uh, I've heard of it. Yo, it got big time snubbed by the the Golden Globes. Like Mm. very disappointing that it did not get attention because it was so good it is so good like if you've seen um fleabag did you see fleabag any of you yeah i love fleabag okay if you dug fleabag you'll dig i may destroy you Mm -hmm. i may destroy you is more intense politically um it's dealing with these 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 tough questions of of the me too stuff um 
and then Promising Young Woman is sort of in that vein. Um, and ah, I just can't recommend it enough. All right, cool. Andrew, uh, what are you into? I am into, there are two, There are, uh, we're fostering rabbits right now. There are two foster, well, we were three foster rabbits downstairs. I'm into all three of them, but I want to highlight two of them. The, oh my pair, god, your Instagram. How do you highlight two except for, and not one, all yeah, of them? Yeah, yeah, hold, like, on, hold you, on. Do I have to highlight every one. single one? Just because just, just it's no, going to be its they own don't segment. No, they're dumb. They don't me, know. <laughs> me describing all of my foster <laughs> rabbits like a nine-year-old girl. <laughs> just to, talking about their personalities. I'm t- taking care of three foster rabbits right now. Uh, there's Thor and Loki, a pair of, of brothers. They're mini laps. Um, I really like their personalities. They're very energetic. Um, and then uh, a little baby, Cora, who is um, she's gray. She's really cute. She hops around. She does these happy little hops. These binkies, they're called. Uh, I just like hanging, just hanging out with so her, cute. sitting with her. It's it's great. It's a real bomb to the soul in this troubled time. Mm-hmm. <laughs> no um, kidding. Yeah, if I wasn't already following you, like. Those rabbit videos on your Instagram would be my reason. <laughs> yes, big time. Um, Wes, can can we come back to something? I'm sorry, this is this is a little strange, but you um you mentioned the farm. Uh-huh. Um, I knew about the farm because I listened to the your podcast. Oh, cool. Um, will you will you drop your your podcast? Oh sure, yeah. So, uh, my time in the seminary towards the end, this group of friends and I, we uh. We had met through this place called the Farminary, which is regenerative agriculture in a classroom at the same time, right? So learning about resurrection while you're in a compost pile. Or, wow. Um, learning about providence or grace or whatever else while you're like, you know, scatter sowing cover crop to turn the soil over or whatever, right? So like really beautiful analogies and metaphors, but what we wanted to do was make a place where, you know, some of the healing of the kingdom of God could make a place for people right so we we made a we set up this project we got some grant funding for people between the ages of 25 and 35 to who have experienced loss recently or in a period of transition to come and we set up a curriculum and we made it a five-day thing and you spend time in the ground in the soil and be with some animals uh, pray pray for each other read um, rest and so we made a I, I made a podcast out of it it's called the cultivators podcast yeah, I'm glad you listened to it, Chris. Yeah. I've, I've seen my I... listener numbers and they're they're pretty low. I did zero marketing. <laughs> um but it was it was a it was a labor of um deep affection for the mm-hmm. people that were part of that and for the ways we experienced God together. Um that was a great experience. Amazing. Great. So for more Wes ASMR action. <laughs> the Cultivators Podcast. <laughs> perfect all right um can't believe i did that <laughs> special thanks uh special thanks to um you know sp- uh, special thanks to um i'm, I'm gonna thank joe mahoney anyway uh, we're not in the studio this week but we'll be back soon uh joe mahoney joe. who is our audio engineer i want to thank amy yang my wife this week for making our incredible website um thank you amy and thank you amy luke um, our communications manager is now also our official website manager. So nice. I, forgot, I forgot to what thank Luke last Luke. time, but uh, we're thanking him this time. Thank you, Luke. Um, and uh, thanks to Tess Patino, our social media manager. Our social uh, media goddess. Yeah. We love Tess. Mm-hmm. Um, and also to uh, Jared Selby, who does our theme song. Yep. And if you're listening to the podcast right now and you want to give us some feedback, if you have some some thoughts, be sure to go to the beautifully designed website by Amy, um, colorcorrectionpodcast.com and drop us a line. And Wes, thanks so much for being here. And with that, y'all. It was a pleasure. Yeah. Yeah. Be sure uh, to stay black, Little Mermaid, y'all. For, for our listeners that don't live in Philadelphia, a hoagie is also is a, a hoagie is a s- submarine sandwich. <laughs>
<laughs> that was so you gotta, basic. You got to so remember, basic. not everybody lives in southeastern Pennsylvania or they, or whereabouts. Hoagie oh. is a regionalism. Yeah, it is a regionalism because it's a yeah. hero in New York, yeah. isn't it? Yeah, I mean, it's... Something pretty... inside me died, though, hearing you say that a hoagie is a submarine sandwich. <laughs> I, 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 just, I, I just got to describe it. All right. <laughs> Chris, Chris, take us to the. Chris, take us to the next thing. <laughs> I, I didn't want to say that. 